When God created the world, he placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he told them not to eat fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and to sin. And as a result, they didn't think it was a big deal, but as a result, they opened the door for darkness and death to enter human creation. And all the problems that we have now are a result of us choosing sin. Well, God came and did what was just and right, and he announced that the wages of sin is death. This is the result of sin. It's separation from God. And so God cursed the earth upon which we live. The earth that was meant to bring forth bountiful fruit without end was cursed by God so that it would only bear fruit in trouble and in difficulty. God announced that this woman, Eve, and all other women who gave birth would do so in pain and in struggle and in difficulty. But in his kindness, even as he was announcing the curse upon our sin, he told all of us through this record that from this woman Eve, God would send a child and that child would rescue and save all of humanity. But interestingly, after Adam and Eve sinned, before God came to curse, before God came to announce blessing, before God came to call to account Adam and Eve for their disobedience, Adam and Eve made clothes for themselves from the leaves of a fig tree to cover their nakedness and their shame and their guilt. Which interestingly makes the fig tree the first named tree in the Bible and the first named tree in human history. Now on day three of creation, God created all trees, but we don't know what the trees were called or what they were until we get to Genesis 3 and the first tree that's identified is a fig tree. Now the fig tree, you might ask, why would Adam and Eve choose to take leaves from a fig tree to make clothing? Well, there's a couple of answers. One's very practical. The fig tree's got really big leaves. <laughs> They're easy to sew together to make clothing. But I think there might be another reason, and I'm not sure if Adam and Eve knew it at the time, but nothing happens by accident. I think there's a theological reason why Adam and Eve chose leaves from the fig tree. And that's because fig trees are dioecious, which means that there are male fig trees and female fig trees. We don't often associate biological sex with trees, and most trees don't have a biological sex, but fig trees do. Female fig trees bear fruit, male fig trees do not. Male fig trees pollinate female fig trees. This is why male fig trees and female fig trees have to be planted together. And male fig trees pollinate female fig trees, usually the with the help of a fig wasp that carries the pollen from the male fig tree to the female fig tree. 
Now you might be thinking to yourself, why the botany lesson on fig trees? <laughs> it's because I think the fig tree was symbolic of Adam and Eve. That it represents this couple. And the fig tree is something that God wants to use today as we think about Palm Sunday and what happened 2,000 years ago. The fig tree actually factors into understanding what was going on on this Sunday some 2,000 years ago. So if you will, would you take a Bible and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21 it's page 801 in the church Bibles. Matthew 21. At Calvary, we're going through a study of the Gospel of Matthew, but currently we're in Matthew 11. But we're fast forwarding a few chapters to Matthew 21 because we want to talk about Palm Sunday. This is an important day in the church's calendar that on this day we commemorate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the start of what is called Holy Week. This week will end with the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And the beginning of the week is also important. And so we celebrate Palm Sunday. So we're fast forwarding to Matthew 21 so we can read Matthew's account of what happened on this Sunday some 2,000 years ago. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on, the, Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. As we picture this scene in our mind, uh, there are people laying down cloaks and waving palm branches, and Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the question is, why is he riding on a donkey? The simple answer is, well, because it was prophesied that he would ride on a donkey. But that just backs up the question, why was it prophesied that he would ride on a donkey? Well, a couple of reasons. The first is that God wants to show his justice and his righteousness in doing what is right. In the book of Esther, 
When King Xerxes wants to honor Mordecai, who is Esther's uncle, for his faithfulness and his obedience, he asks, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? And Xerxes is told, put him on your own horse, parade him through the city streets, and announce this is the man that the king wants to honor. God's doing something similar here for Jesus. It is just and right that God should do this. Jesus has been obedient. Jesus has been faithful. Jesus has done everything that God the Father has asked him to do to this point. And so God places Jesus on his own donkey. Don't miss this. This donkey belongs to God. Not to the man who tied it up. That's why when the disciples go and get the donkey, Jesus is not sending them to steal a donkey. This is God's donkey. And he says, if anybody asks you, tell them that the Lord needs the donkey. The Lord refers to God the Father. And so God is placing Jesus on his own donkey and sending him through the city streets announcing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is good and right and just for God the Father to do because Jesus is deserving of this glory and honor. In a few days' time on Good Friday, these same crowds are going to shout out to crucify him and you might get the impression that Jesus is somehow rejected by God. But on Palm Sunday, God wants to make sure nobody thinks that about Jesus. That he is going through all that he is going through out of obedience. And so it is necessary, right, and just for God to glorify Jesus in this way. So God places Jesus on his own donkey, marches him through the streets, and gives him honor for his obedience and his faithfulness. There's a second reason why Jesus is riding this donkey. It comes from the quote in Zechariah. Matthew's the only one to highlight one piece of this quote. John also quotes Zechariah, but Matthew's the only one to highlight the second phrase in our quote in verse five. It says, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you. And then what's the next word? Gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That in this scene of Jesus riding on a donkey, we have a picture of the gentleness of God expressed to us in Jesus. Matthew's the only one who tells us there's actually two donkeys present. Everybody else tells us Jesus rides a donkey, which he does. But Matthew goes out of his way to tell us there's two donkeys, a mama donkey and a baby donkey. Now remember Genesis 3. Remember the promise that it was through the woman and her child that God was going to bring rescue. So here is Jesus riding, he's riding the mama donkey. Why is the little baby donkey coming on the trip with him? Well, because this is an expression of Jesus' gentleness. He's not taking the mom away from her kid. This is the kindness of Jesus. He loves donkeys. This is his creation and his world. 
And so in his kindness and gentleness, he does not force this mom to leave her baby to come and serve Jesus. Instead, the baby comes with the mom. It's also a picture of the gentleness of Jesus. Because this baby donkey feels completely at ease with Jesus. The mama doesn't refuse to come. The baby doesn't refuse to come. And as you picture in your mind Jesus coming into Jerusalem on this mama donkey with her little baby donkey walking alongside, Zachariah says what you're supposed to see is the gentleness of Jesus. He's not coming in as a dictator. He's not coming in as a warlord. He's not coming in on a horse marching triumphantly. He's coming in in gentleness and kindness. Even the baby donkey can feel it and can sense it and feels completely at ease with Jesus. And what we see in the triumphal entry is both the justice and the gentleness of God expressed to us in Jesus. Well, Matthew goes on and there's two more stories that go with the triumphal entry. They go with Palm Sunday, and so we got to keep going in our passage. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Now this immediate scene of Jesus who's coming into Jerusalem feels pretty ungentle. It feels harsh. He rides in on this mama donkey with this little baby donkey coming alongside of him. He goes right to the temple, and when he shows up in the temple, he turns over the tables of the money changers in the temple. And in this act, we see the justice of Jesus. These people are not here as a foreign exchange to kind of exchange money to help people. He calls it a den of robbers. They're stealing. They're ripping people off. And you got to think, can you imagine? Of all the places on the planet where you would expect to be treated fairly and justly, it would be at the temple of the living God. This is Jesus' temple. And here are these people robbing those he loves, taking advantage of them, stealing from them. He says, you've taken my father's house and you've turned it into a den of robbers. It would be safer for Israelites to hang out in a cave with bandits than to come to the temple. And so Jesus turns over the tables. He, he drives them out. 
See, we talked a couple of weeks ago about uh, Jesus sending us like sheep among wolves. And we says, what kind of shepherd sends sheep to live among wolves? And the first answer was, not the kind that wants to win a fight. Nobody sends sheep to go fight with wolves. That's the shepherd's job. Well, here's this shepherd looking out for his sheep. So the shepherd shows up to the temple and says, absolutely not. And we see the justice of Jesus. This is wrong and he must make it right. So he turns over the tables. He drives the people out. Stop stealing from your fellow man. Stop making God's house into an unsafe, unjust place. But at the same time we see the justice of God in this story, we also see the gentleness of God in Jesus. Now you might not immediately see the gentleness if you picture this story the way I've always pictured it in my mind. The way I've pictured it in my mind is it feels like Jesus sort of something snaps. That after you know all these months of seeing all this sinfulness on the earth, that he finally gets to the temple and in just finally he just gives in to his anger. And he gets to finally let loose on these people who have treated others so poorly. Now please don't miss this. There is indeed righteous indignation on Jesus' part. But in my mind, he loses it, gets furious, and in an anger-fueled rage, throws over the tables, whips the people, drives them out, and finally gives vent to all his anger that he's been storing up for months and years as he's been watching all this go on. I don't think that's what happens in this story. We just got told he was coming in to be gentle. So while I do think he is righteously indignant at the injustice that's happening, I don't think this is an anger-fueled rage. How do I know that? Well, look at verse 14. As soon as he's done turning over the tables in the temple, the blind and the lame come to him. The blind and the lame are actually, by Mosaic law, not allowed to be in the temple. But somehow in Jesus' interaction with the money changers, both his justice and his gentleness is so obvious that the blind and the lame are willing to take their chance going to see Jesus. That somehow how he interacted with those when he turned over the tables, it was actually welcoming to the blind and lame to say, that's the guy we want to go see to help us. More than that, verse 15, what are the children doing in the temple courts at this time? They're running around shouting and singing. Have you ever seen a child in the presence of a rage-filled adult? What's usually their response? Not a lot of shouting and singing, right? If Jesus, as the way I had always pictured it, is losing it right there, every child around is going to go into a shell. But somehow in the midst of his justice, 
He's also being gentle. So much so that these kids think it's safe to run around the temple courts shouting and praising. That's how I know that even in his justice, he does it somehow gently. Well, the passage goes on into the next section, and we need to look at verses 18 and 19. You might think, well, we should look at verses 18 to 22. That's the whole section. But verses 20 to 22 actually go with what comes afterwards when the disciples ask how Jesus is able to do what we're about to read him doing. We need to focus on just verses 18 and 19 because this is sort of the picture of what's been happening so far in Matthew 21. Verse 18, early in the morning... As Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a what? Fig tree by the road. He went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. What's happening here? This is a prophetic illustration. Jesus is not mad at this particular fig tree as if this fig tree has somehow sinned against him. What Jesus is doing is he wants us to recall Genesis 3 and the first named tree in the Bible. Why does this fig tree not have any fruit? Well, it's not the fig tree's fault, it's humanity's fault. It's a result of human sin. Fig trees are cultivated. If they're cultivated properly, they will produce fruit. Now you might say, well, they can only produce fruit during certain times of the year. They don't produce fruit during the winter. They don't produce fruit in the early spring. If you look outside in Michigan right now, you may have a fruit tree that's not producing any fruit. To which my response would be, but that's not the way it was in the beginning. In the Garden of Eden, fruit bore, trees bore fruit all year long. In heaven, we are told that the trees lining the river of life in heaven will bear fruit all 12 months of the year. The fact that this tree does not have fruit on it is not the tree's fault. It's a sign of human sinfulness because we let sin into this world. This tree is not bearing fruit either because it's winter or spring or because it's not been properly cultivated by having a male and female fig tree close enough together so that it can bear fruit. Whatever the reason, Jesus is picking on this fig tree not because the fig tree's done something wrong but because it's a prophetic illustration of our sin. We're the ones who messed up creation. All creation is groaning and longing for redemption from the stuff we've done to it. And so Jesus finds this fig tree and he curses it. Why does he curse it? Well, what did God do in Genesis 3? He cursed the ground. This is a sign and a prophetic symbol. Jesus is cursing this fig tree again, not because he's angry at the fig tree, but it's a sign of the curse of sin that's present in this world. The fig tree is not producing because of human sin. As a side note, and I'm hesitant about slipping this in, but it feels like it's important and I need to say it. Just like this fig tree, it's barren, not because of its own sin, 
but because of the sins of humanity, so it is with humans. Only on very, very exceptional cases are people not able to have children as a result of their individual sins. Generally, humans too struggle with barrenness because of sin generally. And so Jesus is not mad at this fig tree. He's simply trying to make the point that because of our sin, this world is cursed. So he curses the fig tree and it withers immediately. And here we see the justice of God. This is right. The earth is meant to produce food. Trees are meant to produce fruit. And the justice of God is this is not going the way it's supposed to go. But please don't miss the gentleness of God here as well. Where is the gentleness of Jesus? Well, not for this fig tree. But the gentleness of Jesus is in all other fig trees all over the country, all over the planet, all throughout history. The ground was cursed by God and rightfully so in Genesis 3 and should have withered immediately. But instead, trees still bear fruit. More work, more effort. But the gentleness and the kindness of God is in the fact that we still have trees bearing fruit. The earth still produces food for us to eat. Even more so, if this is what Jesus did to this fig tree, what should he have done to the people who are, who are cheating others in the temple? He should have cursed them and they should have withered immediately. What should he have done to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law who were indignant at these children who are praising Jesus? What should he have done? He should have cursed them and they should have withered immediately. What should he have done for all the people in Jerusalem who in their minds were rejecting him as king even as he comes into the city? He should have cursed them and they should have withered immediately. The point of this fig tree is for you and I to think this is what should be happening to all of us. Why is it not? Because even in his justice... God is gentle and God is kind. But the reason why Jesus curses this fig tree is make no mistake about it. God has the power and the right to curse us immediately for our sin and we should wither and die immediately. But he doesn't. So what does this mean for us today? Two points of application quickly. The first. For those of you here who, are not, who have not yet acknowledged that Jesus is king, you've not yet become a Christian, please don't mistake the general gentleness of God as if somehow he is unjust, as if there isn't going to be judgment coming. Jesus came the first time, which we celebrate here, and what is highlighted is his gentleness, but we're very clear that he is not happy when we steal from each other. He is not happy when we do not give him praise. He is not happy when we do not produce fruit. 
Please do not miss the justice of Jesus in the gentleness in which it comes. Because Palm Sunday is a foretaste of the fact that this same Jesus will return again, not on a donkey, but on a war horse. And he will come and make war and judge justly. And what will happen to those who are stealing from others? They will be cursed and wither immediately. What will happen to those who refuse to accept Jesus as Lord? They will be cursed and wither immediately. In Jesus' second coming, the justice of God will be on full display. It's hinted at here as a warning to us that if you are not yet a Christian, Jesus is king. He came gently the first time. He will come and make war the second time. And the encouragement is, do you see what he did to the fig tree? What hope do you and I have against someone like that? The same is true for those who are Christians currently, but who are not living for Jesus. Please don't take advantage of his gentleness because there will come a day when he returns that if you've not borne any fruit, I guarantee that you're going to regret it. So, why not accept and acknowledge this Jesus who could have come in justice the first time but chose instead to come in gentleness so that he might die for our sins and give us space and time to be able to accept. And the encouragement to you this morning is, at some point that time will come to an end. But God is patient, he is long-suffering, he has waited 2,000 years to give you the chance to accept. And the encouragement today is, acknowledge him as king and be saved. The second encouragement is for those who are already Christians. And that is, please don't miss in the justice of God that he is gentle. He does not treat us the way our sins deserve. Each and every one of us have done enough stuff this week that we should have been cursed by God and withered immediately. Why didn't he do that? because he loves being gentle. The baby donkey has zero fear around Jesus. The blind and the lame have zero fear around Jesus. The little children have zero fear around Jesus. And when you and I approach Jesus with childlike faith, we have nothing to fear. He is gentle and humble in heart. He is kind and compassionate. And so the encouragement to you and I today is there's nothing here to be afraid of. He could have come in anger. If you picture him going into the temple courts, blowing his stack, you can think he might do that to you too. But he doesn't. He's slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness. He does not leave sin unpunished, but in his justice, he's always gentle. Amen.
Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus, we see the perfect picture of your justice and your gentleness. God, help us to keep these in balance. Lord, for those here among us who are taking advantage of your gentleness, thinking you're never going to come, thinking you're never going to hold sinners to account, thinking that there will be no punishment or no discipline, Lord, please have mercy. May we look around at this world that is absolutely destroying itself with sin. And may they come to understand that there is no salvation in politicians, there's no salvation in laws, there is no salvation in education and human nature. Lord, we need a king who will come and make things right. And I pray today that they would accept you, Jesus. It is good news that you are king, Lord. What would happen in this world? We would all be gone immediately, except for your gentleness. And Jesus, I pray that those who are exercising childlike faith, Lord, please, if they are feeling afraid, if they think you're angry, if they're nervous being around you, would you today remind them of how gentle, humble, kind, and compassionate you are. And Lord, may we, like little baby donkeys, like the blind and the lame, like little children, shout for joy, walk closely with you, feel no fear in your presence, Because God, you are love. So thank you for loving us totally, fully, and completely in the person of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.